Hey, it is great to be uh, together today. I loved, man, I loved worship uh, today especially, but I love East Hall service. How much, did, anybody, anybody? I love this service. Just um, the way God uses Andy and Tori and the band and the way they, uh, they lead us is amazing. So uh, listen, we are, I'm so glad to be with you today. My name's Todd. If I haven't met you, I would love to at some point. Uh, typically, so if you're new, typically we watch the sermon on the screen in here from across the hall. But sometimes we do a live sermon, so that's why I'm in here this morning. Now, we have been in uh, the book of Ephesians. We're doing a 10-week walkthrough of the book of Ephesians. And it is a wonderful book. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it so far. We're not only preaching in Ephesians, but we're, we're also having all of our community group material go through Ephesians as well. And, and there's even these, um, these study guides, which we've made, that actually help you do personal devotional time in the book of Ephesians. Now, we've ran out of these twice already, and we've ordered more today. Uh, so, and I've actually heard that the problem is that the 1130 service people don't get them because they're all out by the time you get a chance to get them. So we reserved like 150 of these for you right after this. So first come, first serve. But they are great. They really help you dive deeper into the book of Ephesians, all right? It's awesome. We have over 2,000 people kind of diving together into this book. All right, so today... Uh, we are going to move on to chapter 2 of Ephesians. We're going to cover uh, verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, your smartphones. And while you're getting there, I'm going to tell you a, a quick story. All right, so I have three children. Uh, the oldest of my kids uh, is Reese. Reese is nine years old. Reese is a girl, by the way. And when we were headed out on uh, vacation, just uh, when she was 11 months old, I, uh, I brought her down the very first day of vacation. I carried her down to the pool. That's uh, what you do on vacation. And so I took her and I set her down as soon as we got down to the pool. Now she had just learned how to walk. So I set her down quickly. I turned my back to get something. What felt like just a few seconds, I turned back around and she was gone. And I look up and she is standing right at the edge of the pool just like this. I freaked out, okay? So as soon as I saw her, I began to bolt towards her with all that I had, all right? So I was running towards her, and I was running as fast as I possibly could, which was pretty fast, by the way. And, and I was running, and then I started to put the brakes on so that when I got to her, I could grab her and pull her before she took one more step because I knew that my little 11-month-old daughter had no clue how much danger her life was in at that moment. And so I was coming, I was starting to put on the brakes and as I put on the brakes, something happened. Now listen, when every pool has like one rule, what rule is it? No running. No running. That's a good rule. There's a reason it's, it's there. So I started to put brakes on and as I put brakes on, instead of rescuing my daughter from the perils of the water. I slid into her like a major league baseball player slides into home plate. And I catapulted my daughter into the water. And then I slid in right after her. We were both in there. It was a good slide, by the way. 
And we got in there and she was under the water. I picked her up as quick as I can, lifted her up just like this. She kind of coughed some water up and she was just fine. Dad of the year, right there. It was terrible. But you know, I tell you that story. I know that I made it a lot worse before it ever got better. The reason I tell you that story is this. When I saw my 11-month-old daughter standing with her toes curling over the edge, I knew that she had no clue how much danger she was in. I knew that she had no idea how bad she needed to be rescued. And the truth of the passage that we're gonna be in today is this. You cannot possibly be rescued unless you know how desperately you need to be rescued. You cannot possibly be rescued unless you know how desperately you need it. All right, so let's open our Bibles to Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, and here's, here's what it says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's God's word for us today. Some scholars say this is one of the most magnificent passages in all of Scripture. It's one of those drop the mic type of passages. So, what I want to do today is I want to answer three questions that I think will help us understand this passage um, even just a little bit. And here's the first question How dead is dead? Second question How amazing is grace? Third question How do works work? Okay, so how dead is dead, how amazing is grace, and how do works work? So first one is how dead is dead? Well, dead is pretty dead. Let me, uh, let me read to you verse, two, uh, verse one again. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Right, so you were dead. All of us at one point outside of Christ and what he's done for us were dead. Okay, so when he says dead... He's writing to people who are obviously physically alive, right? Because we're reading this. So he's not saying that you are physically or you were physically dead, but he is saying that you were spiritually dead. What Paul is saying is that you were all once dead. No connection with the God of the universe. Zero. All right, so uh, right now, um, in the last few years, zombies have been like kind of the hot thing. I guess so. So there's a lot of shows about zombies. Walk the Walking Dead is one of them. I think there's even a video game. I heard a little cheer first time. All right. <laughs> hey, if you like it, that's cool. Now, listen, The Walking Dead is a great description of what Paul just says right here. 
That's what we all once were. We were physically alive or walking around, but we were spiritually lifeless. We were the walking dead. And some people might go, well, that, you know, Paul seems to be a little bit harsh here. Are we really, were we really dead? Maybe we were, maybe it was more like we were sick or we needed a little improvement or we just needed to, to go to church a few times and get a little help that we needed. But Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, you were spiritually dead. Zero connection with God. There's no spiritual anything inside of us at, at that point. Okay, so that's what he says. Now, um, here's what we need to know. And I need to know it first so then I can communicate it actually to you. Um, so let's, let's keep... Oh, let's keep reading. Okay, so the reason we're dead is because of our sins and because of our trespasses. All right, so that's why we're spiritually dead. Trespass. Trespass, if you translate it into the Greek, literally means false step. False step. So what a trespass is, it means that you are deviating from the truth, but you are absolutely convinced that you are going the right way. So you're deviating from the truth, but you are absolutely convinced that you're doing the right thing. One of the ways that we commit trespasses right now in our culture is that a lot of people, both outside and inside the church, think that, think that man and women, man and woman are inherently good, that deep down we are good people. But that's not what Paul says. He says we, are, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And so that's one of the ways we get it wrong. We think, we might think that we are good. We might think that we're, we're not that bad, but we are. We are physically alive, but we are spiritually dead. We are spiritually dead and we don't even know it. That's a trespass right, then, right there. That's what a trespass is, okay? So, but you might, you might also say this. You might say, well, wait a second. It's not that bad, um, there's, how do you explain all the good people in the world? How do you explain why a, a lot of people that I know are really good people? You're saying they're dead, but look at all the good they're doing. Okay, well, here's a, here's a test for you, okay? I want you to think of one of the best people you know, one of the, the, the best moral people you know, and bring them to me, and here's what I'm gonna ask them. I'm gonna say, okay, we are out to figure out if man is really good deep down inside. So here's, here's what we're going to do with you because everyone says you're such a great person. We have this new technology. It's this chip that we're going to install in your brain. And what's going to happen is with this chip, it's going to help us know if you're really good because every single thought, motive, intention that you ever have in your mind and in your heart will actually come up as script over your head, scrolling for everyone to see. Are you cool with that experiment? Okay, who would be, right? Nobody would be. There are so many people that do so many good things, and that's great. You can, be, you can do a lot of good and not be a Christian. But the truth is that deep down, we are not good. There's a problem, and the problem is stated by Paul. We are spiritually dead. And here's what it looks like. It goes on in verses uh, two and three. Here's what it says. 
In, uh, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, so what this is saying is talking about the prince of the power of the air. What Paul is referring to Satan there. So I'm going to tell you what kind of is the elephant in the room here, because I, I desperately wanted to gloss over this passage, but I don't think I can. What this is saying is that we're not only dead spiritually, but we are followers of Satan. We were followers of Satan before Christ. Now, that, is, that seems strong, that seems extreme, but here's what Satan is all about. Satan, in a nutshell, is this. He does only what he wants and nothing of what God wants. That's how Satan got his start. Right? So you might think, uh, listen, I admit that I've done some things wrong in my life, but a Satan follower, come on. Well, here, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a time in your life where you have done really mostly what you wanted and not at all what God wanted? That's it. That's it. It's in all of us. And you still um, might not be convinced that you're spiritually dead, but the Bible says we lived how we wanted to live by the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, doing what we want to do and not what God wants us to do. That makes us spiritually dead. All right, so uh, if you're still not convinced, I want to add one more thing. And that's this. Paul would have never called us dead if we were designed to be physically alive, if that was the ultimate design that God had for us. But that's not it. God has made us, designed us to be spiritually alive, to be in relationship with him. And that's what the Bible says. You go back to Genesis, and uh, when Adam and Eve were created, they were placed in this garden, and they walked with God, and they talked with God, and everything in the garden was perfect. There was nothing wrong, and Adam and Eve's relationship with God was perfect. And the whole reason the Garden of Eden was that way is simply this. God was there. Therefore, they were spiritually alive. That's it. That's our standard. That's how we were designed to live. And then what happened? You know the story. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They sinned. They did what Satan wanted them to do. And as soon as that happened, they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, which meant they were spiritually disconnected from the God that they were created to be connected to. And ever since then, every person that's ever been born is physically alive and spiritually dead by nature. We were designed to be spiritually alive. That's why Paul says we were all once spiritually dead. All right. Now, if you can understand that you are spiritually dead, then you will begin to understand how amazing Jesus really is. And I think what helps me is Matthew 5. Jesus actually says this as he starts the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed, the first thing he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Why does he say blessed are the poor in spirit? It's not because he's saying blessed are those who are financially broke. He's saying blessed are those who are spiritually broke because he knew that if anyone realizes that they are spiritually bankrupt, then it's at that point and only that point they will begin to understand their need for Jesus. That's what Jesus said himself. All right, so how dead is dead? Well, dead is really dead. We are spiritually bankrupt. No connection with God. That's why Paul says we were dead. Second question, uh, how dead is dead? Then the second one is how amazing is grace? So, so far it's been a big downer. It's gonna get better from here. Um, okay, how about those Browns, right? <laughs> Anybody as excited as I am about the Browns? Now, I had, to, I had to work this in, by the way, because they won! I can't believe it. Now, listen, why did I and many Browns fans act like we had won the Super Bowl on Thursday night? Because we hadn't won in 635 days. Who's counting, right? But as a Browns fan, we get it. Now, listen, if this was like the New England Patriots, it would just be kind of another win, and they would not make a very big deal out of it. But listen, the reason the Browns fans are so happy is because we have tasted, finally tasted a victory after living through the factory of sadness. <laughs> write that down. <laughs> but that is, that's actually very similar to what we see in this passage. We will never understand how good, how victorious the grace of God is in our lives until we understand just how dead we really are in our sins. And so it goes on in this passage, and it gets much, much better. Look at verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up. Yeah, I'm going to stop there. By grace you have been saved. So even though we were dead in our trespasses, spiritually dead, it was God who made us alive by what Christ has done for us on the cross. It's by grace you have been saved. So what is grace? What is grace? Well, grace can be defined as a free gift. It can be defined as a free gift, but it's not just any free gift. Um, so listen, I have, um, I have this $5 Starbucks gift card right here. All right, you want it? Would you like it? Of course you would. Who wouldn't? I'm going to give it to you. Thank you so much. There you go. You're welcome. It's my gift to you. Now listen, um, what's your name? Chrysalyn. Um, tell me, did that change your life? No. <laughs> Somebody's like, it would change mine. Give me some. <laughs> um, of course it didn't change your life. It's actually not even going to completely cover the Frappuccino that you pick up at Starbucks. <laughs> it's so expensive. But what makes, what makes a gift so great is not just that it's free. Right? This didn't change your life. What makes a gift so great is how much it costs the giver and how much the recipient desperately needs the gift. That's what makes a gift great. So let me tell you a different story uh, that might help. There is another story that I've heard of a little girl. This little girl was... Uh, uh, deathly ill. She had this disease that was life-threatening, and she needed a blood transfusion in order to live. 
So her brother was actually a blood match for her. And so the doctor went to the brother and the doctor said, listen, buddy, you're, he's just a little boy. Your sister needs your blood. Are you willing to give your blood so that she can live? And the little boy kind of looked back at the doctor with big eyes and, and kind of thought about it, hesitated just a little bit, and then said, if it means she's going to live, yes, I will give my blood for my sister. And the doctor's like, okay, here we go. So he got up on the table, they, they put the needle, and they start taking the blood out of him. And the little boy looks up at the doctor with fear in his eyes. And he goes, doctor, doctor, how, 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 long, is, how long is it going to take? And the doctor's like, well, not that long. What do you mean? You okay? And he goes, how long until I die? You see, the little boy thought he was giving it all for his sister. And he was willing. The doctor said, no, you're just giving your blood, buddy. You're going to be fine. But isn't that a picture of the grace of Jesus Christ. It was going to cost, he was, it was going to cost him everything, but he was willing to give it because the recipient, his sister, needed it desperately. That's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has given the most expensive gift of all time, and he's given it to us who desperately needed it was the only gift we could ever have ever needed and wanted and that's what grace is all right so let me uh let me look at back at verse three it says this it says that we were by nature children of wrath and i glossed over that part to begin with but we can't gloss over that because what that means is because of our deadness spiritually, because of our sin, we deserve God's punishment. And God is a just God, which means that he can't, he can't not be just. And so when he says the wages of sin is death, it, that's, that's the payment. Somebody's got to pay the penalty of sin because God is just and he can't change his character. And so the only possible way for us to not have to pay is for somebody who had all the riches in the world, who had all the resources in the world that could pay it for us. And that's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 is such a powerful verse. I feel like it's one of the theme verses that we bring up all the time because it's so breathtaking. Here's what it says. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, what this is saying is not that Jesus died for you, but that Jesus died in your place. You got to get that right. If you have kids, don't tell your kids Jesus died for you because you'd die for your child. Tell them Jesus died in their place. It should have been them. That's the power of the gospel. Um, and so that's the great exchange. And it's not, just, it's not just that he took our place. This is amazing. It's that we have now the right given by him to take his place. That's why the gospel is so extravagant. And in Ephesians 2, it actually, it actually helps us understand this. So look at verse 6. 
By grace you have been saved and raised up us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So not only are we saved and made alive by Christ for what he's done for us on the cross, but he says that now that we are saved, he sees us not as dead or not as even a struggling Christian trying to make our way through life, but he has positioned us at the right hand of God the Father, the place that's only deserved for Jesus. He says, now we're there. And so when he looks at us, he doesn't see a struggling believer. He doesn't see a dead person. He sees Jesus. That's the amazing truth of this great exchange, that he got what we deserved, and we actually get what he deserved. We've swapped places. But it's not enough. It's not enough that Jesus just died uh, physically. It's really, it's really not enough. Because if, if all Jesus did was die a death physically, then it wouldn't have been the right payment that, that we deserve to pay. Because remember what we said, this whole passage says we are spiritually bankrupt. We are spiritually dead. And so for Jesus to pay the payment, he had to die physically, but he had to also die spiritually. That's why at the very end of Jesus' life, when he's hanging on the cross, what he says is he screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not the cry of someone who's in physical pain. That's the cry of someone who's in spiritual pain. He didn't say, my God, my God, this really hurts. No, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because for the very first time, he felt what it was like to have the father turn his face away. And for the first time, he felt what it was like to be spiritually bankrupt for that moment. All so that he could take our place so that we could be made spiritually alive. That is the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Now, at my house, uh, we have a thing for our kids called timeout. Many of you have it too. When they get into trouble, we say, all right, you gotta go to timeout, and that's the step at our house. And uh, so my daughter that I mentioned earlier, Reese, when she's nine now, but when she was four, so a long time ago, she uh, did something to disobey me, and I had to give her the punishment of timeout. It was the only thing that she deserved. And so I said, all right, Reese, timeout. Go to the step. And she looked at me and went, no, you know, no way. Because by the way, uh, five minutes in timeout for a four-year-old is like a death sentence. You know what I mean? And she was crying uncontrollably. And I, she sat on the step and she is pleading with me, Daddy, please don't make me do a timeout, anything. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll be as good as you want me to be, but please don't make me sit in timeout. And so I decided to try something. Uh, and I'm not recommending that you do this, but here's what I did. I said, listen, Reese, someone has to pay for your timeout. You, what happens in our house? When you disobey, you, what do you get? Time out, she said. I said, well, someone has to pay for the time out. If it's not you, then who is it going to be? And she's like, I don't know. And I said, all right, Reese, for this very f one time only, <laughs> this is what I'm going to do. I am going to take your time out and you go free. 
And she looked at me like, are you serious? And it took her a while for it to, to really sink in. And, uh, and I sat up on the step. And by the way, time out for an adult is like vacation. <laughs> it, it was not, it didn't cost me that much. But, but her response to me is what made the whole story. Because what happened was she looked at me like, can this be real? Like, Dad, come on, don't mess with me here. Is this, could, this is too good to be true. And I said, it's real. And I sat on that step and I said, you can go. And she got off of the step and she kind of slowly backed away like, when's the joke gonna be up, you know? And then as soon as she realized it was true, her tears began to dry up. She put a smile on her face and she ran away with giddy laughter. She couldn't believe she was free. To this day, I told her what I was gonna tell this story and she said, I remember that five years ago. She couldn't, she couldn't forget it. But see, when we understand what God has done for us, that we were spiritually dead and only by his grace we were made spiritually alive, it changes everything. We are tears of brokenness are dried and turn to joy, unquenchable joy and laughter as we run off free as can be. We didn't do anything to deserve it, but we are saved by his grace alone. That's our response too. And by the way, I, I feel like, so when people say they, people say like, I came to know Jesus or I placed my faith in Jesus or I accepted Jesus into my heart. After studying this passage, I don't, I don't like that anymore. What you should say, and some of you already say this, I love it when people say, I am saved. That's way better because that's true. You didn't do anything. You didn't even, even your faith that you put in was a gift. You were dead and then you were just made alive. You didn't do anything to deserve it. It's a gift. You're saved. How dead is dead? We know it's dead, really dead. How amazing is grace? More amazing than you could ever fathom. And the last question is how do works work? Um, now listen, you can't understand grace unless you understand how dead you are spiritually to begin with. And then you can't understand works until you understand grace. It goes in that order. And so I'm not gonna do justice to the last couple verses here, but I, want, I don't wanna miss it. And we could do like two more sermons in here, but we're not. So here's the last couple verses. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So just a couple things. The first thing is this. Works is not a result. Sorry, let me, let me start that over before I mess it up. Grace is not a result of works. Works are always a result of grace. Grace is not a result of works, but works is always a result of grace. It's because when you understand what Jesus has done for you, you are willing to do anything for him. That's the only response that you can have to the grace if you really get it. 
But then it says, it goes on to say, we were recreated in Christ Jesus with a brand new purpose in life. And our purpose in life is that we're supposed to now do great things for God. That's our whole purpose in life. And I love what he says because he says, you're supposed to do good works which he prepared in advance for you. He's already got them all laid out for you. So if you're a believer in Christ today, know this. Before you even came to know Christ, before you were even saved, he had all these works prepared for you and all you have to do now is walk in them. So what is it that God wants you to walk in? If you're doing it, great. If you know there's something you should be walking in, but you're just not doing it, that means he's shown you and you're just resisting. He has designed you now to do great things for him, to be a part of what he's doing to redeem the whole world. So won't you join him in that? Listen, when you understand how dead you are, you will understand grace. When you understand grace, you'll understand how to live for Jesus. Be transformed in 2018 by the grace of Jesus one time and every single day of your life. Let me pray for us. Father, you are so good. Your grace is unfathomable. I pray that if, uh, if there are any, anybody in here who doesn't know you, maybe that, Lord, you're, you would awaken their heart to your grace today and that they would respond to you. And I pray that for those of us who have already been saved by your grace, that we would be moved to live for you however we can, whatever way you want us to do. Show us those things so that we can walk in them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.